Pop, I'm getting married. <laughs> it's a girl. I, I met her at school. It's this wonderful, uh, what, what are you, are you upset? But let me tell you why. Don't use that tone to me. What tone? That sarcastic, contemptuous tone that means you know everything because you're a man and I know nothing because I'm a woman. You're not a woman. Oh, you bastard. Uh, who's his father? His father is in the arts. You do an eclectic celebration of the dance. You do Fosse, Fosse, Fosse. You do Martha Graham, Martha Graham, Martha Graham. Or Madonna, Madonna, Madonna. But you keep it all inside. What does the mother do? She's a housewife. Oh, I could play it straight. You're listening to Because You Watched with Charlie and Francesco. I'm Charlie. And I'm Francesco. This is a podcast where we take a film that enjoyed significant mainstream success and use them as a starting point to discuss lesser-known films that we think deserve greater attention. But that's not what we're here to do today. (laughs) Instead, this is a special Father's Day episode where we will be discussing, and only discussing, Mike Nichols' 1996 The Birdcage. And what better special guest than relative of mine, uh, Daniel Harris. Hi. Hi, Daniel. So how long have Dad we... would be better. Yeah. <laughs> so how long have we known each other? Too many years to count. Yeah. Although I've been trying to blank them out, yeah. to be honest. I've been trying to blank off them. <laughs> They're a great embarrassment. <laughs> it felt like such a good idea asking you to come on. So we're here to talk about the birdcage, uh, specifically as it pertains to the issue of parenting and fatherhood. But we'll also just be appreciating the film as a whole. So the first thing we like to do when we start an episode, Daniel, is ask uh, the birdcage, good or bad? Good. Surprisingly good. Surprisingly good? I was I didn't expect to like it as much as I did. Is that because you didn't know it was a Mike Nichols film? Yeah, I don't know. Like, it was, I saw the French original first, but we can get into that later. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm sure yeah. we will. Yeah. But I, yeah, I, really like, I really like it. I think that the cast is great, like, across the board, although I've got some stuff to say about the younger actors who are meant to be... <laughs> 20 and 17 and they're clearly like 30. She's meant to be 17. She's meant to be 17 and she's 31. He's meant to be 20 and he's 28. God. So yeah, uh, interesting. The other thing about The Birdcage, I'll give you a quick summary which I should have done before. A gay cabaret owner and his drag queen companion agree to put up a false straight front so that their son can introduce them to his fiancé's conservative, moralistic parents. Mm-hmm. So I would say that, and feel free to disagree, that there is one major blind spot in the three of us discussing the birdcage. Would you agree? Yeah, none of us are conservatives. <laughs> but, but, but I think there is a part of the film that we are not necessarily the most equipped to talk about. Mm-hmm. So that's why we reached out to a good friend of the podcast, and it seems very appropriate that on the Jubilee, we managed to get a message from the Queen. So let's hear from good friend of the podcast, Siobhan Brown. I thought it would be best to send this note whilst... I am in the credits of the movie, so you can hear the joyous music of it. I always forget how much I love this film. Amanda and Albert are brilliant parents, really brilliant parents. At no point is the fact that they are gay the joke. The joke is that Albert is a ridiculous man and... The situation itself is absurd, but it's such a uh, marvellous celebration because, and hear me out, even down to 
Agador not liking to wear clothes and that just being like his thing. The fact that he can't walk in shoes because he probably has dyspraxia and is a clown combined with uh, that no matter how much low-level demonstrative bickering may happen between Armand and Albert, they're just much happier as a couple because they aren't experiencing any weird repressions. And on viewing it again, yeah, it, it evokes the same sense of uh, why should they have to hide? While the Republican parents seem to be putting up with each other. There isn't any affection that we see between them. Uh, she asks him not to eat candy and that's about it. And I would, uh, yeah, I, I, there are things about it that are kind of aged poorly. Like, I think the thing that, I, no, the only thing that ages really poorly about the film is a moment when a bunch of drag queens are all wearing American Indian. Ooh, mmm. Caught me saying American Indian. Native American headdresses. And it does not <laughs> age well. Everything else ages fantastically. And I, I must say, I must say, Hank Azaria smoking fucking hot. So hot. This is the hottest he has ever looked. Like, it's, it's absurd. Love this film. Laughed like a lunatic. Was enthralled, as I always am by it. And honestly, I think everyone should see it. So, as you can probably imagine, I asked him for 30 seconds <laughs> of footage, and he sent me essentially an essay. Oh, which... that, that's half of the episode done. Let's, yeah. Let's get into the second half. <laughs> no, but that is such a good point. There's this wonderful line at the beginning of the film when the son announces that he's going to get married, and he says, I really want to get married because I'm the only guy in my fraternity who doesn't come from a broken family. Yeah. <laughs> I love that line so much. If you vaguely knew the plot, that scene where you meet the son for the first time, and I think you're, you're meant to think that it's his bit on the side, it's not his son, and it's not revealed until later that yeah. it's actually his son. I knew it was his son because I'd seen the trailer. Did that reveal work for you guys? I, um, presumably you were more familiar with it. Well, yeah, the same Yeah, it was, it was surprising because it didn't know quite where it was going because I, I knew nothing yeah. about the film yeah. before I watched it. Yeah, I, I was like, oh, okay, he's a son. And I was like, okay, he's got a son, he's got a partner. Wonder where that, where the backstory of that is. And then we find out... obviously comes out as, it, as, as the film. His mother is Christine Baranski. Yeah. <laughs> Especially being an adaptation of a 1970s play, you assume the son is not adopted by a gay couple. It's not like they mm. could. So that scene obviously didn't surprise me in the birdcage because I had seen the original before. In the original, they play the bit about him being his potential lover much more, much more explicitly. Like he starts caressing his head and kissing him on the cheek multiple times. It's much more of a tender... And you don't really see him do that throughout the rest of the film. You don't really see him be that tenderly affectionate but to his son. But it's more by doing it the way they've done it, it's a lot more subtle. Yeah, exactly. Which exactly. is, which is, yeah. is actually better. Yeah, well, in the American version, it's like, Kisses him once, hugs him, but there's no over the top. Yeah. It's more natural. It's, it's more it's natural, much, yeah. much more natural. So for, so for background, uh, Francesco is the only one of us who has seen uh, La Cage of Fold. Uh, yeah, so film. I'm trying not to talk too much about it. No, no, I, I, I think it's useful as a counterpoint, but I'm just I haven't seen it. Daniel hasn't seen it. I, I think what really strikes me, now that you mention that aspect of the French-Italian version, is that Armand acts like, a, by and large, a very ordinary father who happens to be in a relationship with a man, but the way that he interacts with his son, it's not overly sentimental, it's not overly touchy-feely. It's just not very natural. 
it, like you said, it's, it's, it is very natural. And I don't know how people necessarily feel about the fact that they do set up the dichotomy of Armand is the father and Albert is the mother. And Albert does, at several points, describe himself as the mother of the family up to... You know, we can get into the ending of the film later. But it's, it's, a whole, yeah. it's basically the second half, but, it's not even the ending. That was kind of my worry going into it in advance, because I was... So for context on the French version, the original version, 1978, that was my parents' generation. And this was a film, Italian co-production, with Ugo Tognazzi, a great Italian actor, that was an incredible international success. So obviously my parents and everyone in their generation loved this film, and this is a film that I always heard about growing up, from my mom especially. I've always seen the two of them described as the father figure and the mother figure. I was a bit apprehensive about going into this film, worrying that it might have aged poorly or it might have exploited certain outdated stereotypes around gay couples. It has aged poorly in some regards, but by and large, it is still a great watch. In, in terms of the relationship as parents, it was probably ahead of its time. Yeah. Oh, very, very much, much so. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that Robin Williams... You not Mrs. Doubtfire, so... He... <laughs> Mrs. Doubtfire is a straight man who dresses yes. up as a woman for plot reasons. And you're, but that's why he didn't want to play Albert, was because he already dressed like a woman for a whole film and yeah. didn't want that to be his thing. But Albert looked like Mrs. Doubtfire when, towards the end of the film. Well, we were watching the film in tandem, but separately. And when Albert turns up dressed as mother, I texted you that he looks like Barbara Bush. Do you know who he based the costume on? Barbara Bush? Yes! <laughs> right. I, I, I love that that is so much the idea of conservative womanhood. But that's what she it, was trying to no, trying to, sh to be, to sort of have something in common with the uh, in-laws. It's implied Gene Hackman's character is borderline infatuated with her when she walks into the room. It, it's, very, yeah. it's very sort of Shakespearean Twelfth Night, like oh, I'm in love with this person because I think it's a woman, or I'm confused that I'm in love with this woman because I th think it's a man. The fact that it is based on a play where those sort of misunderstandings are far more commonplace makes, makes a lot of sense. I suppose the question I would ask, if you are going into a situation where you're meeting in-laws and you have no idea that they're gay, and one of the fathers turns up dressed like that and acting like that, and obviously it's heightened, mm -hmm. but just the actual events in isolation of the tone of the film. If you're not expecting a drag queen... <laughs> Which you're generally not. <laughs> well, that, 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 that's the point. But in nine times out of ten, maybe eight times out of ten, I'm not expecting a drag queen to turn up. Would you be more likely to run with the weirdness? Yes, you do. You, you will run with the weirdness, Donald, because you think you don't want to be impolite, especially in that, in that situation. You don't want to be impolite. You just sort of run with it and, and think, Oh, that's not what I expected, or that's interesting. Yeah, I, I also wouldn't, in 2022, wouldn't conceive it as weird. that be like, oh, maybe one of their parents is trans or a cross-dresser, and it's like... But yeah, if, but if you, you, were... you try and take it in your stride initially, yeah. you, you might try and get your head around it afterwards. No, but the difference is that these in-laws aren't just in-laws. They are very conservative, yeah. political in-laws who have a stake in the status quo and stuff not being as weird as the life that their daughter will be entering into. So it's not just a case of opening up, like they are shown to be a special case. The way they live is very rigid, whereas the the parents... The Goldmans. The Goldmans is, is a much more sort of natural, it is as it is. Yeah, well, they, they fight, they bicker, they hug. But there is also a series of circumstances which make 
which make it even worse for the conservative family. So they are presented as, you know, Republican conservatives and the father being a senator. But then later on, a fellow Republican senator with whom the two of them founded the Coalition for Moral Order, <laughs> yeah. which, you know, in American Republican jargons means straight white conservative Christian, is found dead of a heart attack on top of a underage prostitute of color. And I'd say maybe that's a part of the film that hasn't aged particularly well, just, that, that, just in a yeah. way that that is a throwaway line. It's also their, their hypocrisy compared to the Goldmans. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. It's also one of the parts that is more funny in the original, because in the remake, it just shouts every line, like every one of these ridiculous lines about this prostitute. It's like, oh, he died in the arms of a prostitute, underage, black, like one after the other rapid fire. In the original, you see him listen to the conversation, but you don't hear the other side of the conversation, and his face gradually grows pale. Then he puts the phone down, and he's like, and he does that same delivery, but much slower and more methodically, and it's actually much funnier. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that the hypocrisy of it isn't powerful. What I'm saying is is just the framing of that thing, that it is, the punchline is that he's with an underage Yeah, no, the the punchline is that she's black, not that she's underage. Yeah, it is, that is funny. That that to me is the like That is the bigger... Uh, I think you're right about that. I, I also just think Gene Hackman is such so well cast in this film. He is, he is. The, sort of the perfect actor to just be like growly and grumpy and steely face. And I think the fact that, that he ends up in drag and being nervous, not because people see him, just the fact that no one wants to dance with him. <laughs> <laughs> and and not white makes him look fat. I think that's really. I think that's really funny. I think he plays it um, really well. Uh, but to, to go back to what you said, that the punchline is that she's black. Um, I, that's sort of mirrored again by the the reveal that oh they're men and they're married to each other. Oh, and their name's Goldman, not Coleman. They're Jewish. And you go, I don't understand. They're Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> And their Jewishness is a part that the remake added that is so... It adds such another dynamic on top of the queerness. Because like they have this running joke throughout the entire dinner scene where they pretend like their surname is Coleman. But this is something that they come up with on the spot. So everyone else who comes into the room later <laughs> keeps saying Goldman. Goldman. And they're like, what, what do you mean Goldman? Isn't it Coleman? And they each have to make up a different story about why they misspoke. But that's one of my favourite moments in the film is when Albert comes out dressed as the mother and says Goldman. And so we thought it was Coleman. And there's just like this pause and you see this absolute terror in Robin Williams' face. And like on a dime, Nathan Lane goes, well, it's because in France it's pronounced Coldermont. And in Greece it's uh, Coldman, no, Cold of the Isle of Man. And, but in the vulgar Florida, it's Coleman. So we really don't know where we are until we hear our name spoken. And it's just, it's just a moment where all the tension is temporarily yeah. diffused. And what it also does... Because you've had all the stuff of Albert trying to pass for straight. Yeah. Trying to play manly. Not very well. No, not very well. But the fact that he is so good at playing a woman and he is so convincing and is so on the ball when it comes to that in comparison to what we've seen him try to do. Because the character's by and large been a bit of a joke. You know, he's sort of hysterical, he's irrational. Um, well, it's implied throughout the film that during that ruse, he's going to be the wild card. He's going to be the one who ruins, ruins the whole thing. But then he walks in, absolutely kills it compared to everyone else. But yeah. In the trailer, which I assume you haven't seen, it ends with him turning up dressed as the mother with the implication that that's what's going to ruin everything. It is fascinating that Gene Hackman 
He's convinced. Well, he, he's convinced, but has so much more of a problem with Robin Williams than he does with Nathan Lane. Yeah. He's totally taken in. <laughs> There's that great bit that you picked up on, which is when he said, oh, I demand to see an autopsy. He was, I'm sure that... Senator Jackson was framed, and there's just this pause, and he goes, that's exactly what Rush Limbaugh said. <laughs> and it's such, like, a funny name drop. This film is so much more explicitly about a specific political party and specific people, although it's telling a fictional story. It's just setting them up, basically. Yeah. It is, but you were talking about the... So in the French one... Yeah, he's the person who dies, is the president of the party of moral order, not the coalition of moral order. Because being that in France, it's a multi-party system, it's very easy to make up like a minor conservative party right. that doesn't exist. Whereas in the American version, in a two-party system, they have to be either Democrats or Republicans. But they're very, as a Republican senator, it's a very believable character. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I, but like this, this coalition of moral order is made up, but the political party that is a member of isn't, because it's not like you could pretend like there's a third party in the US Senate. <laughs> like, no, that's, so that's, a, that's a bit too far-fetched. But yeah, I, I think it's a really good send-up and sort of forcing them into the contortions mm -hmm. of having to play along with this thing. Yeah, the remake is so much better how it treats the dinner scene compared to the original. Yeah. It's probably one of the highlights of the film. Yeah, I, I think is. so. I think, I think it's where the majority of the tension arises. So I suppose the other thing so I wanted to mention was the kids. The fact that, do you sympathise with Val asking his dads to pretend to be something they're not? Yes, but you'd sort of think in reality... Why would he want to marry into a family that would be this close-minded? Yes. Would you do it if your hypothetical son asked you to do something similar, like pretend like you're um, a completely different person? You'd probably negotiate. <laughs> <laughs> no, but on, on, on you know, what is reasonable, because at the end of the day, you're creating a long-term relationship with these people, probably. Therefore, you, you, yes, you want to sort of make a good impression, obviously. Yeah, but how long can but, you but, 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 but yeah, exactly. No, absolutely 100%. Therefore, you, so you want to sort of make a good impression, but you've also got to be realistic that, well, I can't keep this up for the next you know, 50, years. 50 years, basically, because it's got to be something that's got longevity. I think you're right. I suppose the closest thing, you know, equivalent would be, well, it's not even equivalent because it happens in the film, is if you had a kid that asked you to pretend to be a Gentile. Yeah, but I think you'd turn around and go, don't be so ridiculous. And I wonder if the difference is because it is much more unusual for a film to portray proud gay characters. Is it not to do with the, the different types of couple? Therefore, it doesn't matter whether it's religious or race or background or lifestyle. It's that contrast between two sets of parents who are very, very different. It's an interplay of the difference, really. Yeah. The fact that it happens to be these two couples, who are obviously quite extreme, yeah. it, there's always that sort of creating that relationship because you know sometimes people are very, very similar. Two sets of in-laws are very, very similar, and therefore their children probably have very similar views and backgrounds and everything else. But with this, you've got two parents, sets of parents who are very, very different, but obviously their children, having seen different lifestyles, actually probably crave more, a more normal, regular relationship and don't want the extremes of either being being in a sort of a living above a gay cabaret bar or being very, very right wing on the other side. And they think, well, actually, we've seen probably from our friends and other people that actually there's something in between that actually is what we as a couple would prefer. I'm not quite sure that he 
one that in the long term like it's never implied like that he's okay with his parents lifestyle oh, and work in general outside of this particular situation or, or, of her, to meet or, the other or her either I can't think of anything in the film where she's vocally uncomfortable with the stuff that I mean the fact that she's marrying into what she knows is yeah a I mean well, that, that in itself is, 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 yeah. quite, is quite sort of a kick yeah. in the teeth I think she is I think part of it is that their dynamic is fundamentally less confrontational anyway so the opportunity to voice the problems, the, the ecosystem just isn't there because that's not how her family communicates. But I, I think the fact that she enters into the deception at all is sort of an implication that she doesn't want to replicate her parents' life. Yeah. But you're right, she isn't... She's not rebelling. She, no. She's not... She's not rebelling shy. against them in terms, I guess, who she's choosing to marry, but in terms of rebelling against her parents because of who the parents are, you don't, I don't think you see that in the film. No, I, th I think you're absolutely yeah. right about that. I, I think she never mm -hmm. turns around and says, criticizes you're her You're a bunch fathers. of bigots. Yeah. No, but you, get, but you sort of get that at the end because then they're being married by a priest and a vicar and it, it's, it's... Oh, yeah, yeah. They're so a priest you, and a rabbi. You, you, sorry, sorry. So you, you sort of see that at the very end. There's yeah. a bit of a gap there because you sort of see them leaving the club and then you see the wedding and you sort of wonder what's gone on in between. There's almost a sort of a bit of a period where you think, I wonder how you've got from leaving the club to, to the wedding ceremony. Before they know that the reporters are outside, she is willing to leave with her parents. And I think the other thing to remember is that she is meant to be 17. So... Maybe we're being a bit hard on her. In the original, the two children are functionally non-characters. They have a much smaller role in the plot. He is absent from the dinner scene because he's waiting outside for his biological mother to show up. And she is such a sheepish, stuttery mess. The, do the, the daughter. The mother. Yeah, yeah. So, like, she has much less agency. He is nowhere to be seen throughout most of the film. But, but also the parents are, are, are the dominant characters in the film anyway. Even the mother is a really strong character. Is a really Yeah, I really like the mother. I think she's kind of... It's Diane Weiss, too, is a really great actress. I think she is... In conversations about the film, a lot of people don't give Diane Weiss the credit I think she deserves. I think she's really good. And it's a really difficult thing to make an impression while playing a submissive character. And I think she really does that. There's a moment where she fights back and that's shown as something that she doesn't usually do. From the beginning, she's quite obedient. It's only when she is annoyed at how he is acting towards Nathan Lane in drag that she stands up. And her whole right, motivation yeah. is described as someone has to like me best. So you get the impression she's really been suffering this whole time but not fighting back. Oh, let's talk about the toast scene. <laughs> We're teaching him how to be straight and how straight men spread the mustard on the toast. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I love that scene. You know, it's apparently improvised. So for every scene, they recorded the scripted version, but they also recorded an improvised version. And most of the improvisations were cut out because they were, like, not plot-related. But but that one was kept in because of how funny it was. Yeah, that um, one was kept in. The other one that was kept in was when Robin Williams is in the kitchen and he's storming out um, with the suit and he slips and falls. And I rewatched that scene, and you can see Hank Azaria just kind of holding back, laughing. <laughs> no, but the toast scene is so great. It is teaching him how to spread butter and toast like a straight man. And when Albert picks it up, the toast breaks, and he goes like, "You pierced the toast!" And Robin Williams goes like, "No, don't say it like that. Say you pierced the toast." Ah, and throws the toast away. <laughs> the funniest thing for me is when he goes, "I've just realized something. I can pierce the toast." And I can always get more toast. The important thing is not to get hysterical about it. <laughs> it's just like, oh. Later on, the two of them try and act straight in a park. And they encounter this guy 
who Robbie Williams just starts a fight with to, to prove his masculinity. And then the guy stands up and is shown to be eight feet tall and clobbers him on the head. In the original, that is part of the bar scene. And that is set crucially in the 1970s. So when they go to that cafe, they're sitting in a back room and Albert leaves the back room and goes into the main room where this group of men are just sitting and staring at him and call him a homophobic slur. So he goes back in the side room, tells his husband about it, and the husband, John Wayne style, walks into the room and is like, who called my husband a beep? And he goes up to this like very short guy like, and he's like, was it you? And the short guy points behind him and it's like this huge man. <laughs> so. But what I appreciate about the American version of, of that scene is that it comes about through them just talking and them just hanging out. It's not everything has to be wrapped up. Obviously it does lead to a confrontation, but not everything necessarily has to be wrapped up in confrontation and discrimination in yeah. the way that it does. And maybe it's different because it's 20, it's made 20, 20 years, years later. later. It's Miami, like obviously the bit where the birdcage, the nightclub is, is shown to be very queer and very libertine and very diverse, but is the overall of Miami like that or? I think it's yeah. very mixed. It's so, so big and there's a huge sort of Hispanic and Cuban community. Mm. There is that, like South Beach, I guess. Yeah. There's a, there's a big, you know, Hispanic community in Miami, which is why, in the original, is the butler... Black. The, which is what I, another thing I didn't like about it, like the whole the whole thing about him not being able to wear shoes. Like, it's almost like a racialized, not exoticism, almost like savageness about him. That, I yeah. agree, but I also think the implication no, is I just... I thought it was just, a, it was just a sort of a... Oh, no, he doesn't like wearing clothes. No, in the, in the original, where he's the only black character. Oh, I see. Oh, I see. Yeah. Oh, I see. Uh, sorry, the I, I yeah. thought you were... Talking, I no, the, 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 the remake has a lot it, of... It, yeah. was, it, just, it just makes the character just a bit more ridiculous, yeah, a bit yeah. funnier. Yeah. And, and he's just... He's a, a Guatemalan gay man who lives in yeah. Miami and doesn't have to wear clothes all the time, so yeah. he isn't used to it. And like oh, that, that's the joke. But there's a great line in the original where the Robbie Williams equivalent is Italian and the Hankazeria equivalent is black. And he makes him coffee and Ugo Tognazzi, who, who plays the Robbie Williams equivalent, says, oh, you French don't know how to make coffee. And the guy replies, I've been called black. I've been called the F-slur. I've never been called French. <laughs> <laughs> He was originally going to be... Hank Azaria was originally going to play the dresser okay. of Nathan Lane. And the butler was going to be David Alan Greer, mm -hmm. who is black. And I think they just thought it's... A, it makes more sense to combine the characters. And I think that having a sort of a black butler... It, it's a bit... I don't know. It's, yeah. it's a bit dated. Yeah. But... Also, not having any black characters is also, so, you know, it's a lose-lose. But I, I, I think they made the right choice, and I think Hank Azaria is really funny in this film. It's almost slapstick. It, it, it is. I think it's very, I mean, the whole thing's very farcical. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I, what else is there to say other than I quite like the film? And no, it, it was, it's, it's an enjoyable film. You, you wash over it, and you sort of see the ridiculousness of the right wing and you see sort of the almost normality of what you think well, otherwise would be they could always sort of send up the campness and everything else but you see that as actually being a much more loving natural couple and relationship than sort of the very rigid right wing one was shown with the partner who's died under the black hooker underage as being sort of very hypocritical yeah Thank you for using under, it, underage as the punchline and not black uh, <laughs> it's much funnier dad <laughs> i think it's Interesting that they don't necessarily tone down the ridiculousness of the gay couple. They allow them to be ridiculous and funny. But, but very, very likeable. Exactly. It's not like they have to make a gay couple act like a traditional straight couple. No, but it's interesting you say that the story isn't the fact that they're a gay couple. No, absolutely not. It's a bit like sort of the Shit's Creek idea of the gay couple just being a couple who happen to be gay. 
Yeah, yeah that's, true. that's true. I mean, I've not seen Shit's Creek, well, but Shits, I'll take your word you, for you, it. You can't yeah. have not seen Shit's Creek. It's not allowed. <laughs> You've got to watch your dad it. is telling you to watch this. I think where do you think I get it from? Yeah. <laughs> no, you, you, you've got to watch Shit's Creek. It's, it's just a total non-issue. Mm-hmm. And I think that this birdcage almost does the same thing. It's only an issue for the people who make it their business and make yeah. it an issue. Yeah. No one else seems to care. I mean, you see, there's that great scene where Albert is going through town, like, doing the shopping quite near the beginning. And everyone knows him and everyone says, oh, hi, Albert. And he's, like, very clearly a gay man. I remember when they go to the, to the cafe, they literally order the usual, I think. Yeah. Like, like, yes, so, yeah. yeah. They have a life and they have an environment where they feel safe and loved compared to the senator who the one time we see him leaving his house he's mobbed by hostile reporters Mm -hmm. so the fact that he sort of lives in this fortress whereas they seem to have more of an open home and when they need help redecorating all these drag queens come in and help them tidy up but but that's probably also true the fact that it's in South Beach, or it could be in San Francisco, it could be... Well, it's in Saint-Tropez. Uh, in the, in the, yeah, the original, yeah. Okay. But, you, no, you're right. But compared to the Keeley's house, it feels more like a... You have the imagery of, you know, bars on the gate. It feels much more like a fortress or a prison compared to the yes, fact that they're just, a lot, they're just a lot happier and a lot more part of their environment rather than locked in. I think that's partially also true because they are politicians and they're under scrutiny and I, therefore everything they do, and you just look at any politician. No, no, I, I totally they're agree. Under, they're under constant scrutiny, therefore they're almost, I guess they're on their guard anyway. But it's the fact that that is the one time we see them leaving their house, I think that is still significant. And it's also crucial that like the people who are the more paranoid about everyone being judgmental of them and everyone scrutinising them are the most judgmental and prejudiced people in the entire film. It's like, it's this very common conservative projection. Well, it's yeah. like no one is more discriminated against than straight white men. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Yeah, don't think you're right about that, but okay. <laughs> you, see, you seem very convinced of it. I think it would be remiss if we just didn't talk a bit about Robin Williams in general. What's your experience like with him as an actor or as a movie star? Uh, watched a lot of his children's movies when I was a kid. I haven't really watched too much of his stuff recently outside of this film, to be honest. So I just love it. Like in this film, he's like, I mean, by design, playing it straight throughout, pun intended. But there's this one scene where they are rehearsing one of the drag shows oh, and he's giving a, an example of some of the dances that they might want to do. And just you see his body transforming this like... But when you look at him doing, say, stand up as opposed to being in a film... He's just genius. And it doesn't come out massively in the film, but probably should, probably right that it doesn't because he's, he's an actor playing a role. As an actor, you, well, you see signs of the genius that is him in stand-up. We'd go into the comedy store in LA and he would just unannounced walk in, go on the stage and just perform and just was, was a genius. And he's got brilliant. such physicality to yeah. him. Yeah, yeah it, it's so much... It, there's an energy to it yeah. that he can just sort of jump in and out of different personas and you don't really see it as much in this film except for that scene where he goes... Like the Fosse, Martha Graham. And- oh, you wonder if that was one of the improvised scenes? I assume it was scripted, but I don't know if the dancers themselves were. So they told him, just go up and do something. Because he's like, dances, they do your yeah. thing kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. did. But it's yeah. the fact that he's so exuberant and then goes, but you keep it inside. <laughs> <laughs> they say, oh, you're not just standing there. You're doing all this amazing stuff, but inside. But that really summarizes the entire character. Like the fact that he's the, you know, more straight passing, less flamboyant of the two. But then when it, when he gets on stage, it all comes out. It all explodes out of him. Like, yeah, he's, go- so, he's good yeah. at his job. Yeah, yeah. But that is so emblematic of the fact that 
Oh, that's why this guy is running a drag queen nightclub. Despite the fact that he's presented as, you know, the more masculine straight passing of the two. And then you really see that he does have a lot of energy in him that he curbs in his day-to-day behavior. You see, you watch his other films as well, it's the same. Because he's, he's a fantastic character actor. He left behind, like, such an amazing body of work that everyone who either worked with him or was influenced by him just is unable to say anything... No, like, even after he passed, like, I don't think any sort of controversy ever arose around him. All of his colleagues respected him. Like, he was Mm. one of the rare few Hollywood uh, stars who, as far as we can know, have never met him in person. Me me neither. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So there's only so much we can know about his personal life. No, but stuff would have come out. Stuff would have come out because it always does, it always seems to. (laughs) Yeah, eventually. I mean, I saw an interview yesterday with Nathan Lane shortly after Robin Williams' died and it reminded me of do you ever see that clip of when after John Lennon had died and someone just managed to like catch Paul McCartney on the street and asked him like what he thought and it's like just very very heartfelt and going over his experiences and it was a kind of a similar thing and you do get the sense that particularly those two but I can imagine the whole cast they they do feel like a real company they do feel like a real family a real team because this was like Nathan Lane's first leading role in the film because he was a Broadway person oh yeah and that's how Mike Nichols found him Hmm. Um, that he's like, I never, he never made me feel intimidated. He never made me Mm -hmm. feel lesser. We felt like we were being creative collaborators. And Mm -hmm. I just think that that is one of, I can imagine that quality for someone who's up there on a pedestal and they're so so well known. Yeah. I can imagine Gene Hackman maybe being a bit more intimidating (laughs) just because he's apparently, I mean, he's still alive, but he's retired. You're the grumpiest man in Hollywood. So, do you know, I'll tell you this, that when he was younger, he lived in a flat in New York with Dustin Hoffman and Robert Duvall. That must be the most biggest nightmare of a flat. But I think Gene Hackman, his whole career, he didn't really like make it big until he was like in his, you know, I suppose 30s, because 1970, because of the French Connection. And he'd like been told like a long time that he didn't look like a movie star or he wasn't good enough and he'd never make it. Literally an acting teacher who, I think he was waiting tables once and he was serving his acting teacher. And he said, yeah, you're never gonna make it. And so, Threads created a you know, real chip on his shoulder. And I think that's... If anything, that was probably what motivated him to make it. Again, yeah, there's that... a degree of truth in that. In yeah. the, in the he... uh, no, but I'm not condoning abusing and berating your students in order to motivate them. Let's no, not. That, this isn't, this <laughs> isn't, whipple, this isn't yeah. whiplash. <laughs> I think there is just sort of that energy of, I'm going to be successful in spite of you. I don't care what you guys think. I'm going to I'm gonna do the work. Yeah. But it's really funny. You, you hear so many stories about him on like the Royal Tenenbaums just being a, night, a nightmare to work with because he's just bad at taking direction. And oh, then, and Wes Anderson. Anderson is incredibly difficult. I mean, even he, Ray Fiennes didn't like working with him. He's just a control freak. Uh, not not an abusive director. He's just like micromanaging. He's very everything. exacting. Yeah. I think if you're part of like that old school of like, no, I need to feel it and I need yeah, to yeah. go through it and have like that energy and carry through. The Wes Anderson is probably the absolute worst director <laughs> you could work with. But if you watch interviews with him now, he very rarely does them. But now that he's retired, he just seems so much happier. <laughs> We, we all mellow as we get older. Oh, yeah. I mean, not that you'd know. As this is a film recommendation podcast, before we wrap up, maybe it's worth asking you, Daniel. Um, Come on, call him Dad. Well, you call him Dad. I call, me, call me Sir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I want some respect. I've been waiting all my life for some respect from, his, from him and his brother. I have a brother? Apparently. <laughs> so I suppose my question is, are there any good films you've seen recently or are there any films that you've really like and just think more people should see. About parenthood or in general? Oh, I think that ship sailed. 
Okay. Keep it keep it broad. We can't box him in too much. Yeah. But TV, you were recommending Shit's Creek earlier. Oh, definitely. That's a great recommendation and very fitting to this episode. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But TV, Gamora. Gamora, which you really like and I've still not seen. That's fantastic. Oh, dude, dude. Uh, but there is a film, like it's based on a feature film, which we might want to talk about when we talk about mafia movies next time. Because we've got a lot of mafia movies we yeah, want to talk about. Yeah. So from my end, I'm just going to mention some of the films I came up with when brainstorming what is a good film to chat uh, on Father's Day with Charlie Stad. And some of the titles that came up were David Lynch's Eraserhead. Oh, of course, yeah. Park Chan-wook's Old Boy. Tony Erdman would have been a great one. We may do it next year. I think uh, I'd, have said, I'd have said The Royal Tenenbaums, actually. Oh, The Royal Tenenbaums is a good one, yeah. No, but I was, yeah. I think you'd, I think you'd like it. Next Father's yeah. Day. Next Father's Day, okay. Uh, I could see a film in between. I don't do it every year to see a film. No, you do. But yeah, if you want to watch a lovely heartwarming film about fatherhood... I'll happily take recommendations. <laughs> yeah, not these two. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, Daniel, do you have anything to plug? Any projects you're working on you think people, our listeners would be interested in? Oh, if anyone wants some office space in the Northern Quarter, I'm your man. <laughs> That's about as far as it goes. Are you a social media presence where people can follow you or you don't use nah. it as much? Nah. <laughs> Do you want us to share your phone number on this? <laughs> really your address, not. Your address, <laughs> your, your, your fax number. Fax number? I haven't got a fax. You don't have a fax anymore? No. Why would you? Why would I have a fax number? <laughs> because you have, you have a lot of analogue stuff in your office. No. It's all, it's all digital now. Oh, yeah, very advanced. <laughs> got an email address and everything. It's amazing. Uh, well, you can follow us on Twitter at BCUWatchPod and on Instagram at BCUWatchPodcast until... Instagram get back to us and allow us to change it back to BCU Watch Pod. Or the other way around, we can make Twitter podcasts. They're going to be the same eventually. Eventually, but, we, but as of now, they're very different. Just like the two families in yes. the birdcage. <laughs> just came up with that. So it's very not. Good. It's not very. It's, it's terrible. Not, it's not very. Well, I'm gonna keep it in though. Uh, thank you, Dad. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank for, you. Thank for, you for coming inviting, on. Thank you for inviting me. As always, thanks to our esteemed producer Jade. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Thank you.